HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Appeal. Appeal is a plant-based protective layer that helps produce last up to twice as long. Learn more at appeal.com. Ever since the, the Flint crisis, the Flint water crisis, it really became clear to me that as a country, we expect our cities and our, and our states to provide access to clean water. And when that doesn't happen, um, you know, we're, we're really outraged about it and, and rightfully so. But it wasn't until the turn of the century when the connection was made between clean water and cholera that cities started to recognize this as a public health issue and started to invest in the pipe structure that made sure that people got clean water. And I really believe that we are in that cholera moment now for food, where the connection has been, I think, really clearly made between unhealthy food that gets piped into communities of color, primarily, and all of the diet-related chronic illnesses that are plaguing those same communities. And we are really pushing our city and and really our country to recognize that it has a responsibility as a public health issue to invest in that pipe structure that makes sure that everyone has access to healthy food. Welcome to The Big Food Question, a podcast exploring the most urgent questions from a food industry in crisis. I'm Dylan Hoyer, a producer for Heritage Radio Network. Today we're asking... What if produce was treated like medicine and doctors could prescribe healthy food? This episode is part of a three-episode miniseries created in collaboration with the Rockefeller Foundation. To learn more about the Foundation's food initiative and global commitments, visit rockefellerfoundation.org commitment food. We'll look at a growing body of produce prescription programs, that allow individuals living with diet-related chronic illnesses to access vouchers for fruits and vegetables. Patients who are experiencing diabetes, prediabetes, or hypertension go to their health provider, and we've been partnering with federally qualified health clinics, so community clinics. Their doctor writes them a prescription for produce. That prescription is then called into the pharmacy at Giant Food, which is the only full-service grocery store in the Ward 8 community, and the patient is able to get $20 a week to spend in the produce aisle. This is Lauren Schrader-Beal, the executive director of DC Greens. 
an organization advancing food justice that currently runs a produce prescription program serving 650 residents of D.C.'s Ward 8 neighborhood. Which is the area of D.C. that has the highest poverty rates, multi-generational poverty. It's our about 100% African-American community in D.C. And there's a 17-year life expectancy difference between Ward 8 and Ward 3, which is our more affluent, whiter area of the city. Four of the five top leading causes of, of death are, are actually diet-related chronic illnesses. So, you know, these are preventable illnesses. These issues of food access, health, and inequity affect millions of Americans across the country. USDA estimates that in 2019, about 10% of U.S. households were food insecure. Um, and I should note that those rates are estimated to be significantly higher for certain populations like Black and Hispanic households. Additionally, there are huge numbers of Americans, 34 million roughly, so that's about 13% of Americans that are living with diabetes. And that's a condition that we know is closely related to diet. Katie Garfield is a clinical instructor at the Center for Health Law and Policy Innovation of Harvard Law School. We work with organizations and coalitions really across the country to improve care through health policy, particularly for individuals living with chronic illness. She shared the results of a study conducted by researchers at the University of California, San Francisco, that illustrates the intersecting issues produce prescription programs are trying to address. They looked at inpatient admissions, so hospitalizations for individuals living with diabetes in California over a period of time. And it found two really important things. First, it found that hospitalizations for hypoglycemia, so low blood sugar, were more common for low-income individuals than for high-income individuals. And then really importantly, they found that the risk for those admissions actually increased 27% at the end of the month, but only for the low-income population. And they didn't see a similar pattern for a condition that wasn't diet-related. So they also looked at appendicitis and they didn't see that pattern. Now, to be fair, the, the authors couldn't be 100% sure of the reason for this pattern. But what it strongly suggested was that food access issues were driving health outcomes in a really dramatic way. So at the start of the month, when paychecks and government benefits like SNAP were first received, food budgets are high. But over the course of that month, as that budget was used up, households may be reducing how much food they're consuming to sort of stretch that budget and make it to the end of the month. And as they did so, individuals living with diabetes could put themselves at higher risk for low blood sugar. So what the study really seems to illustrate, what the story it seems to tell, is how food access and health equity align. When you can't access food, your health suffers, especially if you're one of the millions of Americans who are living with diet-related disease like diabetes. And this cycle of lack of access and poor health outcomes really disproportionately impacts low-income populations. Today, there are about 100 programs across the country carrying out some version of produce prescriptions. They have the potential to address some of the biggest issues facing our food and healthcare systems. In this episode, we'll start by talking about the implementation and funding of produce prescription programs, and then move on to the big picture questions they pose for the future of nutrition and public health policy, 
particularly in light of the COVID-19 pandemic. We'll use DC Greens as a case study. When they launched their produce prescription program in 2012, they partnered with DC Farmers Markets. For the first five years, the program's participants could shop for locally grown food, but access remained an issue as DC's farmers markets were only open seasonally and had limited hours. DC Greens took time to adjust the program and began working with Giant Food in 2019. Here's Lauren Schrader Beal again. We shifted over to Giant really um, in an effort to respond to that feedback that we were hearing, really open it up for a you know, longer time period at a brick and mortar um, institution. I will say, you know, our hope is that if we are actually able to expand and scale this program, we would love for patients to be able to shop at multiple types of locations, Um, you know, really to be able to shop at Giant or at a corner store or at the farmer's market in their neighborhood. One benefit of working with Giant Food is their pharmacy. Patients can pick up their prescription and shop at the same place. Initially, prescriptions were paper vouchers, But now DC Greens is working with Giant Food to digitize these vouchers so they can be loaded on to their grocery store membership cards. On the grocery side, I've been shocked to see how many (laughs) nuanced things go into point of sale systems and scanning codes. And, um, you know, it turns out that they had never created a Uh, sort of a scan code for an entire section of the grocery store. Once the system is upgraded to allow for these changes, recipients of produce prescriptions will be able to shop at any giant food store, expanding the program's potential footprint across the region. In addition to advancing their technology, Giant Food has added to their team. They invested in a full-time in-store nutritionist who's wonderful, and she's also been leading... Uh, workshops and, you know, is part of the diabetes prevention program. Lauren believes this is an example more grocery stores could follow. I actually was speaking at the United Fresh Produce Association Expo and, you know, really actually encouraging trade associations to consider supporting in-store nutritionists at more locations across the country because at the end of the day, they, they really are sort of salespeople for produce. Offering nutrition advice and education can help foster a support system for those receiving produce prescriptions. But Lauren clarifies that participation from patients shouldn't be required. I think it is so important that people have access to nutrition education. And I think more and more care coordinators and payers and clinics are really starting to provide more stable access to nutrition education as a part of their their work with their members. But I think it's very important that we not condition things like produce prescriptions on having nutrition education, because I think a lot of people already know what to do with fruits and vegetables. You know, they, they know what's good for their health and they, they just haven't had the resources to be able to buy those foods. And I think anything that, that puts another hoop to jump through so that people can simply have more resources to be able to feed themselves and, them, and their families, I, I, I think is a, would, be a, would be a mistake. So we certainly think it's important to give people access, but never want to make it a a mandatory precondition. The collaboration between DC Greens and Giant Food covers the produce side of this program. 
On the prescription front, DC Greens also works closely with healthcare providers. We have doctors saying to us, um, this program is finally giving me a way to help my patients follow my medical advice. Building relationships with doctors and clinics leads to greater awareness of the program and a higher number of enrollments. DC Greens has also partnered with the city's public health department to expand the program's referral process. This will allow them to onboard a thousand more patients in the coming year. Doctors will actually be able to sort of click a button to immediately enroll the patient in the program, and then the patient's information will also come to us so that we can also support on some of that follow-up and care coordination and take a little bit of the, the pressure off of the clinical providers at this stage. Insofar as produce prescription programs involve both healthcare and food sectors, a major part of Lauren's work at DC Greens is building bridges. Something that we really believe at DC Greens is that if an organization, if a nonprofit has to grow its own size as its impact scales, then it's, it, it hasn't really shifted the system. It's, it's sort of just added another leg onto the table. And so what we are always really focused on is we call it building the pipe structure. So, you know, we, we know that you have doctors and clinics that are looking to be able to get more healthy food to their patients. You have grocers that are interested in having a, a new customer base. And it's very hard for those two sectors to connect with each other. They're both extremely busy. They each have their own different workflows. And what we've been doing is is trying to do that work of collaboration and really take the time to understand what is the workflow on the clinic side? What is the workflow on the payer side? What's, you know, what, do we, what needs to happen with the point of sale system so that we can build a, a, you know, a full system that eventually does not require a non a nonprofit in the middle. You know, we're really looking to shift that system and that happens through policy and it happens by raising awareness and by really working out some of the nuts and bolts around around workflow. This requires a major shift, even though it's not a radical idea. This program really sort of sits on the shoulders of, of work that's happened for decades in this country, really starting with what we like to think of it as being sort of a, a byproduct of the work done by Dr. Jack Geiger in the Mississippi Delta in the 60s. And what, what happened there was he would see patients coming into his doctor's clinic who were suffering from malnutrition. And he would tell them to go to the grocery store, buy food, and bring it back to the clinic to be reimbursed. And at that time, you had insurance companies coming and saying, you can't do this. You know, you, we're not going to reimburse food. And he has this very famous quote, which is, I believe the last time I checked my textbooks, the exact remedy for malnutrition was food. And, you know, what this program does is, is really take that one step further, working together with healthcare providers and with insurance companies to make sure that access to healthy food really can be something that is embedded into the healthcare system. In theory, funding for produce prescription programs could come from the food sphere or the healthcare sphere. And when pilot produce prescription programs started popping up a decade ago, they were funded by grants in both fields. Over time, funding sources have expanded from philanthropic programs to federal policy like the Farm Bill. Here's Katie Garfield again. 
So we saw that really starting in 2008 and then in 2014 with the introduction of the Food Insecurity Nutrition Incentives or FINI program. And then finally, in 2018, the Farm Bill actually allowed 10% of that FINI program, now called GUSNIP, to be set aside specifically for produce prescriptions. So essentially, it created grants that came along with evaluation requirements to assess produce prescriptions. And that program has been providing funding over the past few years, initially for nine produce prescription programs across the country, and, and recently another 10 were announced. Support has also grown in the medical sector. We're starting to see interest in the healthcare system, with states like North Carolina and Massachusetts building funding for nutrition interventions into large demonstration projects in their Medicaid programs. Many advocates of produce prescriptions, like Lauren, are hoping to see private insurance companies invest in the program. What we're really hoping to do with this program is prove that there is a strong financial return on investment for the health system if it invests in access to healthy food for, fo- for folks who are suffering from diet-related chronic illnesses. Um, you know, we believe that integrating healthy food access into the healthcare system really holds the potential for cost savings to the healthcare system. She's hopeful that backing from private insurers would have positive ripple effects in communities that have traditionally suffered from underinvestment. If you can crack open those healthcare finance dollars because it makes good business sense for the healthcare system, you actually have the potential to bring a flood of dollars into communities to be able to to shift the, the built environment. Grocery stores, and particularly when it comes to fresh foods, you know, grocery stores operate at very narrow margins and fresh food is perishable. So when you have grocers who are unsure whether there's a market there to actually support carrying more fresh fruits and vegetables, they often make the choice not to, and they stick with shelf-stable items, which you know we know have more preservatives, are, are, are not as, as healthy for, for individuals. But if we actually can get healthcare finance dollars to really support produce prescriptions programs and food as medicine programs, it actually can secure the market for grocers to put healthier things on the shelves because they know that the dollars will be in people's pockets to actually buy those foods. Lauren's vision may seem optimistic, but there's a lot of money being spent trying to solve these health issues already. Here's Katie. The American Diabetes Association estimates that the annual cost of diabetes in the United States is $327 billion. So that's one in every seven healthcare dollars being spent on diabetes and diabetes complications. And I should note that that's about a 26% increase since 2012. Research about the effectiveness and cost savings of produce prescriptions is in its early stages. So far, there is evidence of their positive effect on health. Initial research has shown some encouraging starting points. It's shown that produce prescriptions can improve fruit and vegetable intake, which really impacts sort of diet and overall health. We've also seen studies that show that produce prescriptions can improve blood glucose control for individuals coping with type 2 diabetes. But the jury is still out on whether produce prescriptions can save healthcare dollars. Lauren is hopeful that in the next couple years, Studies will demonstrate that they can, and then incentivize investment. But Katie believes there are reasons to be hopeful, regardless of the bottom line. 
We do need to be a bit cautious when we're focusing too much on cost savings. So cost savings is a very, very high bar. We don't see cost savings, especially short-term cost savings with many healthcare services, but we still really see them as valuable because they're improving health and they're improving lives. Instead, I would really encourage the focus in the produce prescription space and with other nutrition interventions is to think about whether or not they're a cost-effective approach to improving patient health outcomes, especially when they're compared with other treatments for the conditions they're addressing. After the break, we'll dive deeper into questions about scaling up produce prescriptions and the role that nutrition plays in our approach to public health. This episode is brought to you by Appeal. Here at HRN, we care about reducing waste across our food system, from farms to home kitchens. We know that about half of the produce we grow ends up in the trash. We all want to enjoy produce at peak freshness and reduce the amount that gets thrown away. That's where Appeal comes in. Appeal is a plant-based protective layer that helps produce last up to twice as long. It's edible, invisible, and imitates how peels naturally protect fruits and vegetables. Because here's the thing, less waste doesn't just mean we're throwing less food away. It also means we waste less water, energy, and other resources that go into growing produce. Appeal works with nature to reduce waste across the food system from the farm to the kitchen. Appeal helps us conserve our precious resources to ensure we have fresh food to meet our growing need. Appeal, food gone good. Learn more at appeal.com. Welcome back to The Big Food Question. I'm Dylan Hoyer. In the first half of this episode, we explored the health and access issues produce prescription programs are trying to solve. And we looked at the ways these programs are being implemented and funded. While support for these programs is growing, their impact is not yet fully understood. At the current moment, advocates and healthcare providers are continuing to collect data to assess their effectiveness. And Katie is looking around at the myriad of models that exist for distributing produce prescriptions and considering which makes sense to scale up. She's actually working on a report to be published in 2021 that will outline some of the biggest barriers to widespread implementation. One question revolves around the conversation we just had about funding. So really thinking in the long term about things like standardized coverage in Medicaid and Medicare for produce prescriptions. As right now, we have some initial opportunities, but those are through waivers. They're through flexibilities. But technology is also a key concern. So many of these produce prescription programs really started out very low tech using vouchers, paper vouchers or, or sort of coupons and tokens. And that works very well for a small program. But as you try to scale it up over a larger region, the administrative effort that goes into tracking and dealing with those sort of physical coupons gets more and more difficult. And so as programs are thinking about scaling, we're seeing a real interest in leveraging technology. So leveraging approaches like loyalty cards or building on other technologies that are available to retailers. This is exactly the course of action DC Greens is taking at Giant Food. But there are other options as well. 
There's one group in, here in Massachusetts that's currently working to create a technology solution that could, in fact, operate on debit card systems, which would, would be really innovative and fantastic. Ultimately, access for patients and retailers has to guide the decision. However, there's still considerations to keep in mind, especially around how we implement them in a really equitable way. For example, we need to think about are there ways to address or minimize upfront costs of new technology so that small retailers aren't left out of these programs. As tricky as the logistics posed by produce prescription programs are, they aren't necessarily original. SNAP has also gone through some similar steps that we can take lessons from in the produce prescription space, the movement towards EBT and electronic systems. SNAP stands for Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, also known as food stamps. Not only has SNAP expanded the reach of EBT cards to include more retailers and farmers markets, in the wake of COVID-19, a pilot program was expedited so that grocery delivery could be made available to SNAP recipients in most states. This relied upon partnerships between the USDA and a number of big box stores. SNAP's strengths and weaknesses provide insights for the future of produce prescription programs. SNAP itself may also be a part of that future. SNAP is, is such an incredibly important foundation for food access in the United States. And I think that any plan to scale up produce prescriptions has to keep SNAP in mind, especially because as people cycle on and off of produce prescriptions, we want to make sure that somebody who's coming off of a produce prescription isn't left with no option. Questions about the ideal duration of produce prescription programs remain the subject of research. Inquiries into the best suited solutions for the program's future, in terms of technology, transportation, and funding, also remain open-ended. I would say all of those opportunities and, and similar programs are being explored, again, to take lessons learned or to perhaps build on existing infrastructure so that we're not reinventing the wheel. In some cases, though, Katie does see opportunities for systems-level changes. Healthcare providers need to understand the impact of nutrition on patient health and how to connect patients to these services. Um, and it, in, an, in an intuitive sense, I think a lot of healthcare providers fundamentally understand the importance of nutrition. However, they're not being given, in, in a lot of cases, much training on this front in their, their undergraduate and graduate medical education. So just to give you an example, the average medical school offers only 19 hours on nutrition education, so that's less than 1% of total lecture hours. In the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, the connection between nutrition and public health is more clear than ever. We know from CDC data that individuals living with diet-related diseases like diabetes, again, coming back to diabetes, obesity, chronic kidney disease, and, and heart conditions are at increased risk for severe illness from COVID-19. So in an immediate way, it's shining a spotlight on nutrition and the way that nutrition issues sort of reverberate across individual health. Food access also cannot be taken for granted during this time. I know that many healthcare providers are more than ever seeing, seeing their patients struggle with food insecurity as we see issues like job losses and constraints on income for many households. And those healthcare providers, they, they want to do something about it. So there's, there's increased the tension from the healthcare sector in that way. I mean, I think it's really hard not to be 
affected by the images we see of, of huge lines at food banks and similar programs. And so so all of that taken together, those statistics, those experiences, those image images, I, I, I hope they have a real impact on the way that decision makers are, are thinking about these issues. On a local level, we're already seeing small but significant shifts in policy. Some states are expanding capacity of their Medicaid programs to address nutrition needs. North Carolina uh, is a great example here where the North Carolina legislature actually used $2.5 million of its CARES Act funding, that funding it received to respond to COVID-19, to provide access to produce prescriptions for individuals impacted by COVID-19. While these are promising signs for produce prescription programs, Lauren reminds us of the time it takes to implement them properly. During the pandemic, we had health systems across the country reaching out to us saying, you know, how do we set up something like this? And sadly, I had to say, yeah, this is not something that can be set up in the midst of a, of a crisis, um, just because, it, you know, it took us three years to get all of the legal, legal documents signed and have everyone really comfortable and on board. But these connections are not impossible to forge. And federal legislation may offer the funding and expediency that's required to put produce prescriptions into action on a large scale. During the COVID crisis, one of our institutions that really came through and was, was, was sort of solid around food access was our school meals programs. I mean, our, our, our school food systems stayed strong and really became key uh, food access points for so many members of the community. And, and that's because we had a strong federal level investment in school food. We've created school food as a sustainable system. It needs more funding for sure, but there's enough there that it actually could withstand a crisis. And I think that we need to start recognizing that our emergency food system that was really set up about 40 years ago and when the federal government sort of abnegated responsibility for for feeding and kind of pushed it onto the nonprofit and philanthropic sector there's just a there's an underinvestment in that sector and yet we rely on it so heavily and as a result you know we saw what happened a, a sector that is run on volunteer labor labor and and donations can't withstand a crisis it, it's just simply not resilient and, you know, we really believe that this is a moment where we need to be expecting and pushing our governments to take ownership again of food. Thanks for listening to The Big Food Question. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Check back often as we address critical questions for eaters, operators, and workers across food topics and business sectors. If you have questions you'd like the show to answer, email us at question at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is part of a three-episode mini-series created in collaboration with the Rockefeller Foundation. To learn more about the Foundation's food initiative and global commitments, visit rockefellerfoundation.org slash commitment slash food. Special thanks for this episode to Lauren Schrader-Beal and Katie Garfield. The Big Food Question is produced by Katie Mosman-Wadler, Kat Johnson, Hannah Forden, Dylan Hoyer, Matt Patterson, Luke Griffin, and Kevin Chang-Barnum. This episode's executive producer was me, Dylan Hoyer. 
Our audio engineer for this episode is Kevin Chang Barnum. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. The Big Food Question is powered by Simplecast. The content of this series is provided for general information only and should not be considered professional advice. You should obtain professional or specialist advice before taking or refraining from any action on the basis of this content. This project is funded in part by a Humanities New York CARES grant with support from the National Endowment for the Humanities and the Federal CARES Act. This program is also supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. The Big Food Question is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio.